and start. I know a number of people have classes at 1.30, and they've already sort of signaled that they, they need to leave about sometime after 1, so I want to start and make sure John has enough time to uh, engage us and get his uh, ideas out. John Owen IV is going to talk today on regime change and the balance of power. As many of you know, John's an associate professor at the University of Virginia. He has his PhD from Harvard. He's written a book that I know everyone in my graduate seminar has read, uh, Liberal uh, Peace and Liberal War. He's written a number of articles, International Organization, International Security, all the journals that our August IR group decided were in the top tier after we ranked all these things. Uh, he's also on the editorial board of International Security. And it's great to have you here, John. Good so to be I'll here. Podium view. Thank you, Rick. Uh, I'm not using PowerPoint. I just couldn't resist having this picture up here. But let's, let's, we can get rid of that, uh, and that will be the end of it. Much beautiful, beautiful pastoral scene there. Um, thanks very much for having me. Um, last night, I actually had dinner with Randy and, and Sean Kay, and Randy said, what are you speaking on? And I said, well, <laughs> you may have heard this before, Randy. In fact, you may have been the discussant uh, of, of an earlier version of this before, so... Um, but Randy assures me he, he doesn't have a great memory for these things, so it's going to be fresh. It's going to be fresh for, for everybody. Um, now, it's a project I've been working on for years, and it's, this is uh, the version that's, uh, I hope, just about ready for, for uh, a book. Um, but it, I haven't finished the book by any means, and so uh, this is work in progress, so I uh, want to exploit you. Um, if you have, uh, uh, you will doubtless have criticism and comments. Please don't be shy. Um, I'm even if people have to leave early, I'm tempted to make it a short to shorten the talk a little bit, but we'll see how that goes. Um, so my title is "Regime Change in the Balance of Power." Uh, regime change makes us think of Iraq, uh, and that's deliberate. I, I meant to do that, at least get you in the door here, but. Um, most scholarly attention, insofar as there's been scholarly attention in the policy journals and so on to Iraq, has to do with uh, whether Iraq can become a democracy. And that, of course, is a vital question. It's not the question I'm asking. The question I'm asking, I'm asking two questions. One of them is, what if, if Iraq were to become a democracy, what, were, what would be the international consequences? Um, and that may be such a strong assumption that you don't find that interesting, but it certainly played a role in U.S. policy um, in the run-up to the war and, and, since, and since the war. Um, would it be to America's advantage if Iraq were democratic? How so? What, what would be, how would the region balance of power in the Middle East and so on uh, change? And the more general question is, what are the, what are the consequences for the international system when uh, one country changes another country's domestic regime? Uh, in particular, what are the changes in, in the balance of power? I'm, I'm going to focus. There, there's a lot more going on in the international system than the balance of power, but that's, uh, again, a, a narrowing of the question. And the second uh, question, which is related, is under what conditions can we expect great powers to, to do this sort of thing, to use force to, to alter the domestic institutions of, of another country? Um, or to preserve the domestic institution. Sometimes you have the other, a, a more preservation, interve intervention to preserve a country's uh, domestic regime. Now, we have many data on externally forced regime change over the centuries. And we have data on the international consequences of these changes. 
And what I'm doing in this project, one thing I'm doing is trying to mine these data. I don't, I don't do statistical work, but, but I just have lots and lots of cases that I'm trying to draw some conclusions from. American democracy promotion is often typically treated in the scholarly literature as sui generis. It's just uh, it's something America does for reasons of its own, and it's not comparable to what other great powers have done. Um, and in a sense, that, that's right, uh, but because every country is, is exceptional in some ways. But um, looked at from a, one angle, it's, it's not right. Great powers have spread their domestic institutions to other states um, many, many times since early modern Europe, that is throughout the, the modern state system. In ancient Greece, we see a lot of this in Thucydides. In medieval Italy, uh, we see a lot of it as well. And I don't think we have a very good explanation for what is a, a clear regularity. Um, and it's important that we come up with some sort of explanation because the United States has declared this to be, regime change to be um, part of the uh, official doctrine. Um, some of our theories suggest that states shouldn't, shouldn't ever do this. Uh, they should not bother altering uh, other states' domestic regimes. Waste of time. Um, so structural realism would at least imply that because you can't make any general statements about how domestic regime type affects international outcomes, then um, you know, th th there's no uh, rational reason for states to do it. They may do it for other reasons. They may mistakenly do it. They may do it for domestic political reasons, something like that. But um, it's not something that structural realism would, would find to be uh, rational. Um, and I talked to some realists over, over time about this, and they say, well, well, um, a state that is very secure externally might do it because it has, it's a luxury. You know, if you're not threatened at all, then you can do things like democratize the world or something like that. But um, you shouldn't find states doing it when they're, they're feeling insecure. When security is a scarce good, they shouldn't do it. And I found, and I published a paper on this a few years ago, um, that the opposite was the case. That this is, it's most likely you find states doing this, promoting regimes with force, most often when, when in international security is scarce when they're, they're feeling threatened. So that, that's an interesting, perhaps counterintuitive, for some counterintuitive uh, finding. So what are the conditions that make uh, regime, forcible regime promotion most likely, and what's the causal story connecting the conditions to the outcome? That's what I'm after. So as a first cut, um, I say that regime change from the outside is more likely in a, a time and a place when regime type correlates to alliance. That is to say, when states tend to align uh, externally based upon regime type. So the United States, all else equal, is more likely to promote democracy with force when democracies tend to stick together, when there, there tends to be a kind of a uh, ideolo apparently ideologically based uh, alliance um, norm out there. Um, now, there is a literature that tests for correlation between regime type and alliance. And it's mixed. The quantitative literature, I think, on balance says there is, there is a relationship. Uh, qualitative studies uh, tend to actually say the opposite. They, uh, and, and it's because they, they investigate the question differently. Um, but uh, I, I've long found a paper that Syverson and Starr published in 1994 very interesting. They, they found that um, after a regime change, states are significantly likely to change their alliance portfolios. Uh, but they don't tell you when. I, I have actually found that, that's, that, that, that this happens. This is clustered across time and space. Sometimes states do this a lot, and sometimes 
they don't do much of it. So, so I take the relationship between regime type and alliance to be conditional. There are conditions under which states align based on common ideology, and there, there are times and places when they don't seem to do much of it at all. So when, when is that? Can we, can we say something about that? And um, the logic I'm going to unpack here builds upon a paper I published uh, a year ago in, in International Studies Quarterly. There I was looking at a different question but, uh, than regime promotion, but the, the logic is the same. And let, let me just spell this out. I, I identify two conditions under which uh, forcible regime change becomes likely. And the first condition is that an ideology, uh, which roughly speaking is a plan for ordering public life, is spreading transnationally across states, across polities. So, for example, uh, from the 1770s on through well into the mid-late 19th century, uh, liberalism and then nationalism were spreading, uh, and uh, absolute monarchy was retreating. Um, and this led to certain sort of dynamics we see in that period that we had not seen before. After 1917, Bolshevism... Marxism-Leninism is spreading uh, in Europe and later uh, through much of the world uh, at the expense of other al alternatives. Uh, in the 1920s and 30s, fascism was spreading, uh, often at the expense of liberal democracy. Um, so we, we all know, if you know any history, you know there are times and places when this sort of thing is happening. Uh, today in the Middle East, in, in, the, in the Muslim world, um, radical Islamism defined various ways. Uh, we all have a sense that there, that's a, an ideology that's on the move, maybe it's not sustainable, but, but there, there's, uh, there's certainly, um, we, we have reason to think that that's, we're in another, in another time when something like that's happening. And these, why these things spread, um, I kind of try to cover that under the general label demonstration effects. Uh, uh, there are different stories about why demonstration effects happen. There, there's a lot of skepticism about demonstration effects, of course, but I, I think that, they, that there is such a thing and they, um, uh, but, but so anyway, that's condition one. An idea, ideology is spreading in, in a given international system transnationally via demonstration effects. And the second condition is that it, in at least two countries or states in the system, uh, governments that adhere to the re retreating ideology decide to oppose the spreading, the advancing ideology. Um, adherent, if you're a government of a retreating ideology, an ideology that's in trouble, that's facing some sort of transnational challenge, um, you, can, you have a number of choices. You could convert to the ideology in, in principle. Um, you could accommodate it somehow. You could say, well, we'll tolerate it. Uh, we're not going to convert, but neither are we going to fight it. We'll just tolerate it, find a way to kind of make, make it work. You can uh, try to hide from it, hope the problem will go away, um, or you can oppose it. You can fight it. And if, if governments, two or more governments, decide to fight it, then that's the second condition that I need. So just to give you a stylized example, suppose we're back in the world of Thucydides, classical Greece, city-states, not nations, but uh, and there are, there are two prominent regime types, democracy and oligarchy. And uh, thanks to demonstration effects, democracy is spreading throughout Hellas. Um, and... At least two oligarchic governments decide to oppose it. Uh, they don't, for whatever reason, they, they have an identity as oligarchs, or they, since they are, in fact, property elites, they can't pretend they're Democrats. They you know, they know they can't convert. 
uh, they just decided to stand and fight against democracy. Now, um, they, these oligarchic governments immediately have a common interest. They face a common threat, transnational spread of democracy. They have a, a trans, let's just say, transpolity, transpolis spread of democracy. Um, but they have a, a, a collective, uh, they have a, a collective action problem. Um, the more of them oppose democracy, the better off they all are. But each might be tempted, each isn't, isn't quite sure how committed the other is to opposing democracy. And so uh, you might portray this as something like a stag hunt game, if you want to use that, that metaphor. Um, so they have an incentive to agree to cooperate to oppose democracy, the spread of democracy. They have an incentive, at the very least, to say, we're, we agree today that we're not going to, that we're going to suppress democracy within our own cities. We're not going to form an alliance or anything like that. We're just, we just sign a pact. We're going to oppose the spread of democracy in our own cities uh, because we have this common interest. If uh, Sparta says to Corinth, fellow oligarchy, if, if, Corinth become, if you become an, a democracy, then democracy is, uh, continues its march. It's, the juggernaut continues. So we want, and you're, you're, you stand the same vis-a-vis us. So. so that's the common interest. Now, I fully accept the point that uh, constructivists often make that, that an, an ideology, an attachment to a particular regime type, is not something that, that, that actors can, spread like, can shed like a cheap suit. It's, it's not that. Now, some actors may be like that. Henry Navarra famously said, uh, Paris is worth a mass, so he converted to Catholicism so that he could be Henry IV and rule all of France. But not everybody's like that. Some people are like Martin Luther, who said, here I stand, I can do no other, a few years before Henry um, uh, made his move. Uh, so th- th- this, um, I want my argument to be able to accommodate actors like that who are really committed to, say, oligarchy. Uh, but even those actors are going to want, they, they prefer a world in which they get assurances from their fellow oligarchs in other cities or states that, they, that they're going to resist the march of democracy. Now, once these oligarchic, these oligarchs start to cooperate, quay oligarchs, that is, quay anti-democrats, uh, they give the Democrats uh, a common interest as well. And things now can enter a spiral of hostility. Uh, the oligarchists have uh, given their Democratic counterparts a, a, a common interest in cooperating. Democrats, and the logic is straightforward, I think intuitive, Democrats are excluded from the intra-oligarchic cooperation. Um, to make up for this, they need to step up their own cooperation and when they do that, the oligarch observe it and they say, oh, well, the, the Democrats are now cooperating. We need to step up our cooperation and so on. So it, uh, a form of a spiral model um, ensues. Now, again, the cooperation uh, in these nascent uh, ideological blocks can start out rudimentary. Um, it doesn't mean that you immediately get offensive alliances and attempts to roll back and so on. That might come later in the chain of events. Early on, we're just talking about rudimentary uh, cooperation and rudimentary counter-cooperation. Um, one thing that often uh, has troubled me about the, some of the institutionalist literature in IR is that it's all about cooperation, but we all know that cooperation in any social situation can beget counter-cooperation among those who are excluded. So this is, uh, all I'm trying to say is their cooperation can beget counter-cooperation among the excluded. Now, should this co- cooperation and counter-cooperation uh, continue to spiral, um, then uh, conflict among these groups can result. You can have blocks, ideological blocks, harden, form and harden and deepen. Um, and within these blocks, actors perceive common interests. 
Um, so let's say in ancient Greece we have democratic Athens, uh, oligarchic Sparta, and let's say we have a third city, Corsaira, which is divided, which has uh, Demos and the oligarchs fighting in a civil war, which Thucydides says really happened. Um, now, in Corsaira, I argue that because the threat within the city to both Democrats and oligarchs is so acute, there, uh, Democrats are going to feel the, uh, the strongest common interest with foreign Democrats and foreign democratic regimes like Athens. So when Corsaira is undergoing a civil war between Democrats and oligarchs, the Democrats are going to perceive a, very, uh, a strong interest with t- Democratic Athens. A stronger interest than Democratic Athens will feel with them because Athens in democracy is relatively secure. The same goes for oligarchs in Corsaira, the city that is undergoing a civil war. They feel a strong common interest with oligarchic Sparta. Um, and I mention that because that, that gets to, that finally brings me to the point of forcible regime promotion. Um, I call this, and I, so I'll return to that point in about one, one or two minutes, but I, but I call this um, somewhat reluctantly, this spiral, the progressive ideologization of a system. And I, I hesitate because I have trouble pronouncing the word, um, and it's also a very ugly social science word, so... Um, if you can come up with a, uh, an improvement for me, I'm, I'm, I'm open to it. But the, the intuition here is just you've got, uh, if you take a group of three, four, five states, they could divide um, and align on any number of lines. This I'm trying to describe conditions under which they will align along ideological, um, when ideology will, will be the, uh, the dividing line. Now, the, the more ideologized is an international system, the greater is either or both of two incentives on states to promote domestic regimes in other states. The first incentive has to do with internal or domestic security. Let's say the government of Athens, and we change an assumption I made a minute ago, government of Athens, a democracy, does face a domestic oligarchic threat. Um, and Thucydides uh, does describe something like this. Very late in the Peloponnesian War, there was an oligarchic coup um, and so, so let's say that's looming, and so the, the Democrats who rule Athens are, are worried about this. Um, the government, Democratic government of Athens has an incentive to try to weaken uh, transnational oligarchy by promoting democracy abroad, by stemming the tide of oligarchy. Um, it can weaken the demonstration effects by overthrowing an oligarchy. It can weaken material support, perhaps foreign oligarchies are funneling money to the oligarchs within Athens so we can uh, help suppress that. It can, it can also make Athenian oligarchs choose. It can make them look unpatriotic. If they don't join in the war, if they don't join in the intervention against this foreign oligarchy, it can make them look unpatriotic. Uh, revolutionary states sometimes do this. Stephen Walt's book, Revolution and War, describes this kind of thing, I think, quite nicely. So that's the first thing. Athens, the Athenian government is simply acting to safeguard its domestic security. It's concerned about oligarchy within its own borders, and it, it acts abroad, intervenes abroad, so as to cut off moral and material support to Athenian oligarchs. The second incentive, is, uh, which empirically often overlaps with the first but is analytically separate, is uh, to improve the external environment of the state. So suppose that um, 
forget what I said a minute ago. Suppose that Athenian democracy is domestically secure. The oligarchical problem has been taken care of. But neighboring Corsaira is, as I said a minute ago, uh, ideologically torn between oligarchs and Democrats. Both factions within Corsaira, oligarchs and Democrats, uh, have a, a strong common interest with foreign ideological confrères so that, that the Corsairan Democrats are pro-Athenian and anti-Spartan and the Corsairan oligarchs are uh, pro-Spartan and anti-Athenian. Athens has an incentive to place the Democrats uh, in power in Corsaira because these, these are their people. This is their party. This is their faction. And you see a lot of this in Thucydides. I just taught Thucydides uh, a few weeks ago for the first time in a while, and so it, it, it occurred to me that this is, this is all over uh, his history of the Peloponnesian War. Um, but the incentive here is to make Corsaira into an ally uh, and to keep it from being a Spartan ally. Let me mention, too, a special case. So far I've been describing cases in which a power promotes its own institutions in a foreign city. And we know from the American experience, often the power will promote other institutions other than its own in uh, a foreign state. Uh, why, why does that happen? Under what conditions does that happen? Just I'll mention that briefly, and we can return to that during the Q&A if you'd like. I call these unlike promotions. Um, and these are under special conditions that actually obtained very broadly in the Cold War. Let's, let's suppose Corsaira, uh, we, we have the same setup, Democratic Athens, oligarchic Sparta, but Corsaira has a civil war. There are no Democrats in Corsaira. It's a, it's a civil war between monarchists and oligarch, ol oligarchs. So you have a, um, a oligarchy is, is on the march, but in Corsaira it's on the march against monarchy. Um, the oligarchs are, are pro-Sparta, and if Athens and Sparta are rivals, Athens has to, the clear, the rational choice appears to be help the monarchists, even though Athens itself doesn't like monarchy, it doesn't want to be a monarchy, but, but the monarchists are the anti-Spartans, so uh, that's, that's how it works. So uh, to jump ahead, U.S. promotions of authoritarianism um, during the Cold War and continuing U.S. support for regimes like the Saudi regime, the Egyptian regime, some of the Central Asian uh, republics now, which are not democratic. Um, I call it, these are unlike promotions or unlike, unlike support. Um, now, both of these, the strength of both of these incentives, the domestic security incentive and the external environment incentive, uh, again, are a function of the degree of the ideologization of the international system. And both these types of promotion um, actually serve to heighten, to further ideologize a system. Right? They, make, they make matters worse. If, if the goal is to lower the degree of ideological polarization of the system, these sorts of interventions actually uh, are counterproductive. They make it worse. But they, they are, uh, I've tried to describe the incentives that states have to uh, conduct them in any case. Um, in fact, a promotion by one state can lead to a counterpromotion by another. And of course, Siren Civil War, and according to Thucydides, is a case of this, where you've got um, lots of foreign intervention in this city. It was a really, really horrible uh, civil war. So that's my story about how we get to this state, uh, where, where states have either or both of, of, of two incentives to promote their institutions in other states. Over time, the ideologization of a system does tend to weaken. We know this is not a constant feature. Um, some think it's a very rare feature in international affairs. I think it's more common than somebody like Stephen Walt would, would allow. But I agree, it's not universal. I, I don't make this argument that states always 
align on ideological grounds. I think that's on its face, that's uh, uh, clearly false. Uh, so how does ideolo- ideologization tend to weaken? Well, there are various ways. One is, um, let's say the government of Corsair, let's say Athens installs a democratic regime in Corsair. And at first, this Corsairan democracy has a strong, it, it really needs Athens patronage. It has a strong, it, so it does what Athens wants. It helps Athens wage the war against Sparta. But as Corsairan democracy becomes consolidated, as the oligarchy begins to be uh, suppressed, uh, the common interest the Corsairan democratic government has with Athens begins to decrease as well. Uh, and it may, over time, Corsairan may see its way to start reaching out to cooperate with, with oligarchies, even though uh, they used to be the enemy. Um, so that's one mechanism by which ideology, uh, I really need to find another word, uh, can weaken. A second is when ideologies converge. You can have a case where uh, a third way emerges. Uh, democratic oligarchy or aristocratic democracy or something, something like that emerges, uh, an attempt to split the difference. Uh, a third uh, mechanism is when one ideology just fades away. You know, why is it that... Uh, absolute monarchy just isn't really, a, apart from, I guess, in certain uh, places like Saudi Arabia, it's just not, you know, it's not a winning argument in, in most of the world, uh, but there was a time in which it was, so, but we, so we know ideologies just lose uh, for whatever reason, historically contingent reasons. Uh, I don't know. I don't have an argument about that, but they, they do fade away. Marxism-Leninism is not the winning program that it was 50 years ago. Um, so... Uh, so to sum up, across time and space, systems of states uh, may be more or less ideologized, ideologically polarized, depending on the conditions I outlined above. And so the more ideologized, the more incentive states have to promote their regimes uh, in other states, and the less ideologized, the less incentive. So that's why we find this happening in, in, in clusters. Sometimes there's very little of it. Let me tell a couple of quick stories uh, about this, and these will be familiar, uh, certainly the second one, but the, the first one is the early concert of Europe, something that has been, uh, Henry Kissinger wrote about it, and Bruce Cronin, and lots of, lots of people have, have mined this, th- these cases uh, in interesting ways. Um, just to go over the, the background, the uh, late 18th century revolutions in, in the United States, and, and especially in France, had demonstration effects all over Europe. One of the best books I know on this is R.R. R. Palmer's um, Age of the Democratic Revolution. And, and the French Republic, first French Republic, did a lot of this regime promotion in surrounding countries, in the Low Countries, in <laughs> Italy, Switzerland, uh, and, and so on. And then the, when Napoleon took over, he did more of it. He transformed republics that the French Republic had installed into Bonapartist Regimes, and he uh, went and spread spread his system in, in various new places in Europe. Often, setting up one of his mediocre relatives on the throne of of, of these countries. Um, after Napoleon was defeated, uh, monarchy was restored uh, through most of Europe by the victors, including in France. Although in France it was a constitutional monarchy, interestingly. Um, now, what I want to focus on is that in the few years after the final de- defeat of Napoleon in 1815, there were fluctuations. I, I, I argue there are fluctuations in the degree of ideological polarization in Europe. Similar things going on in Latin America that I won't, that I won't talk about. Uh, 1818, three years after Napoleon's gone, he's in, in uh, St. Saint, Saint Helena, 
Um, not a problem anymore. Um, the powers are not so concerned about revolution uh, right now in 1818. And at uh, Aix-la-Chapelle, the powers met. Tsar Alexander was there. Castlereagh was there from England. Metternich from Austria. And uh, the Tsar proposes a, a permanent anti-revolutionary alliance among the, among the powers. The Tsar is actually still concerned about revolution. But Castlereagh and Metternich aren't quite so... They're more worried about Russia getting its tentacles into the rest of Europe. So they veto the Tsar's proposal. They think... I mean, Alexander was an odd character. They, they can't quite figure him out. But they think one thing he might be doing is just trying to extend Russia's influence into Western Europe. Um, and so they veto the, the system. And there's no, there's no wholly anti-revolutionary alliance set up at this point. Uh, and, and, and very little impetus. So, so not much, in fact, no regime promotion going on at this point. Then in 1820, a series of revolutions break out in Europe, in Iberia, in Italy, and in Greece, liberal revolutions, and mon- absolute, so-called absolute monarchs in these places have to submit to liberal constitutions. They have to become constitutional monarchs. So it looks like liberalism in the form of constitutional monarchy, roughly on the British model, is, is advancing. And absolute monarchy, or legitimism it was sometimes called, is, on, is retreating throughout the system. Um, and Metternich in particular in Austria is very worried about this sort of thing. He was traumatized by the French Revolution. He's paying a lot of attention to these events all over Europe. He's very worried. Uh, so the, the powers meet at Trapau in eight, the fall of 1820. And Metternich says to Alexander, um, I like your idea of an anti-revolutionary alliance. Um, Cooperation among absolutists breaks out uh, because there's this outbreak of, again, liberal revolution uh, spreading transnationally. Um, Interestingly, Britain didn't join this uh, alliance. Now, the British said they they don't believe in in, in imposing any form of government on on other states. Britain claimed to adhere to a policy of non-intervention. But British actions uh, belied that. And that, that's a story a lot of people accept about Britain, but I, I think the evidence points otherwise. Uh, as I'll say in a minute, Britain did some of this foreign regime promotion as well, but just of a different sort than Austria and, and Russia and so on. Um, what happened was Britain, uh, well, I'll say in a minute, Britain began to cooperate with constitutionalists while, while the Eastern conservative monarchies were cooperating with absolutists. So in 1821... A year after this Tropau conference, Austria, with the approval of most of the other powers, not including Great Britain, uh, sent troops to Naples and Piedmont and overturned these liberal constitutions and restored absolute monarchy. In 1823, France, which is an odd case, France was a constitutional monarchy, but it was governed in 1823 by an absolutist coalition who wanted to make it an absolute monarchy, um, met... Uh, and met with uh, the Russian, Austrian, and Prussian uh, foreign ministers, and they all agreed that France could send 100,000 troops into Spain to overturn a constitutional monarchy that had been set up there uh, and to re- restore the absolute rule of Ferdinand VII. So France is now joining this absolutist uh, international cooperation. This, by the way, is the event that set off the Monroe Doctrine over here. Americans were paying attention to this, too, and they thought... What are these European absolutists doing? Are they going to do the same thing in Latin America, restore absolute monarchy there? Um, now, in 1826, Britain um, 
intervened in Portugal on behalf of constitutional monarchists against the absolute monarchists. So what we're seeing here is a rift in the concert of Europe along these ideological lines. And you're seeing this international and transnational cooperation among absolute monarchists on the one hand and constitutional monarchists on the other. France, again, uh, is interesting in this regard. In 1830, France underwent uh, a liberal revolution, uh, the July monarchy. Louis-Philippe becomes citizen king. It's more or less along a constitutional monarchy along the British model. And France uh, joins Britain in what became called the, uh, the Entente Cordiale. So, uh, again, we're, we're seeing deeper cooperation along ideological Lines. And the story goes on and on. The concert of Europe is fascinating and you know, more interventions in 1848 and 1849. But, but I hope you get the picture. The story I'm telling is, is consistent with the expectations of the argument that you will have when you have an outbreak, when, when one ideology appears to be on the march, in this case constitutional monarchy, you will find uh, polarization and you'll find intervention um, from uh, powers of various ideologies on behalf of their confreres in smaller states. Uh, the second case, uh, more familiar, I think, and then I, I think I need to stop, um, is after the Second World War, in, in the early Cold War uh, period. And what I'm trying to do here is not offer a grand explanation for the Cold War. We've got lots of those, and I'm not ready to offer one, and I'm not even int terribly interested in offering one. But I just want to, again, see if, if what happened in the early Cold War is consistent with um, the argument I'm making uh, and, uh, let's see, cut to the chase here. What I'm interested in is a story of how in, intra-block, intra-democratic and intra-communist cooperation developed and deepened after the Second World War. Because, as we all know, the Grand Alliance was uh, cross-ideological. The Soviets, on the one hand, the British and the Americans, and so on, and the other, uh, cooperated. And we know why. Nazi Germany was this uh, obvious threat. But... Um, but how did how did that break down? What what exactly was the process, and why did things? Why were the U.S. and Britain? Why did they end up on the same side, doing the same basically the same sorts of things in in Europe? Um, I want to focus on Germany, the Federal Republic of Germany. It's interesting because um, we don't. Well, maybe we do know now. It, it wasn't clear in 1944 what Stalin's plans were for post-war Germany. We do know. Uh, that Franklin Roosevelt didn't quite know what he wanted to do with Germany uh, after it, 1944. It's clear Germany's going to lose at some point, um, and Roosevelt was drawn to the idea of his Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau that Germany be pastoralized, be kept permanently weak and agrarian, so that it can't make war again. But Roosevelt didn't have any strong thoughts about whether this would be a democratic Germany. It would just it would be in a weak state, maybe a, a sort of a colony of the other. Maybe Britain and Russia would take joint custody of Germany, something like that. Roosevelt was much more interested in uh, the non-European world, uh, post-war order. Um, and after Roosevelt died and, and Germany was divided into its the, the, four, the three and then the four zones, um, the United States did not promote democracy in Germany. It was, um, and, and the, the American government was, uh, had, had different things to worry about. Had to worry about not making the Soviets too suspicious. Had to worry about the French who were demanding reparations and wanted to uh, remove lots of uh, rep reparations and wanted to move, remove industrial plant from, Germ from their German zone and so on. When did the United States decide to promote democracy in Germany? 
Well, in the spring of 1946, uh, the communists lost uh, lost a key vote in France, and uh, shortly after that, Molotov, the foreign minister, announced uh, to Germany and to the world that the Soviets were changing their policy in Germany. The Soviets had imposed a fairly harsh, as you might imagine, uh, post-war regime in their in their German zone. Molotov announced that from now on, the Soviet Union favors a united and prosperous Germany. And Lucius Clay, over in the American zone, General Lucius Clay, who was running the American zone, was quite alarmed at this. He, he thought, what, the Soviet, what Molotov's doing is competing for the hearts and minds of the Germans. Lo and behold, we're, we've tried to avoid too much conflict with the Soviets, but we are competing with them for influence in, right here in the heart of Europe. So Clay urged James Burns, the Secretary of State, to respond in kind, you know, we're, we need a PR boost in Germany. We're losing the Soviets. Soviets are gaining the favor of the German people, so we need to respond in kind. And uh, Clay drafted a whole set of talking points that circulated through the State Department. Finally, Burns agreed to give the speech. And in fact, the speech was uh, co-written by Charles Kindleberger and John Kenneth Galbraith. Um, and then Burns delivered the speech in uh, 19, late 1946 in Stuttgart, saying the United States favors a united, prosperous, and democratic Germany. And you can find there's a James Burns Institute in Germany, and they have this speech prominent on their website. It's a key moment in the formation of the Federal Republic of Germany. But my point is this, this was not a, always the American plan. The British uh, were doing similar things. British, uh, Ernest Bevan saw the same things, and, and he made a similar speech about Britain's intentions for Germany. The French were not interested in this yet. It took them a few years before they agreed to... Uh, to a united and democratic Germany. But my point is uh, that this is only happening when you see the Soviets uh, making moves, um, cooperating, cooperating is probably the wrong word, but using communists, the, the uh, SED in, in, their, in their zone. Um, the, the, the World War II, the Grand Alliance is starting to break down because we're seeing communists uh, deal with each other more, excluding Democrats, and Democrats doing the same thing. And I'm not, this is not an effort to say it was Stalin's or Molotov's fault. I'm not assigning them. I'm just saying there, were, there was a time in which there was less cooperation within ideological groups, and then that cooperation grew and grew and grew, and that's when the United States became interested in democratizing Germany. Uh, the and when the United States did this in coordination with Britain, uh, creating a common currency, for example, within there to the British and the American zones, that alarmed the Soviets. The Soviets stepped up their, uh, what we'll call cooperation in quotes, with the German communists. And this was a part of the unfolding of the Cold War. Um, so regime promotion, I argue, is integral to our, any understanding of, of how we got the Cold War. Uh, there's more to say about it. I could tell stories about Italy and, and Japan and, and South Korea and so on along the same lines, but um, all roughly, I argue, consistent with the argument I'm making. But, but again, just to reiterate, and then I'll, I will stop and, and uh, take questions and comments, uh, there are conditions under which governments do have strong incentives to promote uh, domestic regimes, sometimes their own, sometimes a different regime. This is not an argument that ideology trumps interest. I was talking with Ted Huff over coffee about this. This is not, and I've given this talk elsewhere, and people think I'm making this argument that you know, I can tell you when ideology is more important than interest. It's, it's not that. It is that sometimes it's in a state's, a government's interest to promote its ideology. 
and I'm trying to say when that is. Um, sometimes self-interest involves doing A, and sometimes involves doing B, and that's what I want. When is it A and when is it B? Not when do countries defy their self-interest. I, I don't find that an interesting, I mean, it's interesting for some, it's not interesting to me right now. It's not, not a part of this project. Um, so when the United States promotes democracy now, regardless of how well or clumsily, um, we shouldn't try to explain it only by appealing to some peculiarity of uh, the current administration or something like that. I argue that there are times and places when there are structural incentives to do this. Um, it's an understudied regularity uh, in international affairs. And because, again, we're in a world where this is happening lots, uh, I think it's important to understand why it happens and what the, the consequences are. Uh, one last comment. I will say, I will say one thing about Iraq, which is that, in, in Afghanistan for that matter, um, I don't think my argument would actually explain those interventions very well because there's not, in neither, neither Afghanistan nor Iraq do you have a strong liberal democratic element there. Now, Ahmad Chalabi seems to have convinced lots of important Americans that, that there was one in Iraq. Um, he's a remarkable man, I, and I don't know how he, he did it, but you know, he really knew how to network in Washington and so on. So it may be that there, there's something that, that, that enough important people in Washington believe that Iraq had this democratic party ready to go uh, was not the case. Um, but in any case, these, these cases are a, a problem. They may have more to do at the end of the day with certain particularities of the Bush administration or, or certain pressures that 9-11 generated or something like that. Um, so anyway, let me stop there and open it up to questions. John, I'll let you take your question. Okay, yes. Right, that's right. It's not in our interest to promote it. And the same could be said in the face of Islamism as regards Algeria, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, right. and so on. So there's surely a kind of pragmatic struggle depending on the security of life. Right. And the kind of regime that's right. That's why right. those, this, I have two microphones. Um, that's what I I call these unlike promotions. They they are they are contingent and they you know they are quite con I thought about that these are so common certainly in the American cases through the Cold War and, and that, that maybe you know we shouldn't think of them as exceptions. They are uh, perhaps more common in some periods than democracy promotion. Uh, I think during certainly during the height of the Cold War, outside of Europe and Japan, that's that's basically all we did. Um, and now it's, you tick off some, some, some countries where that's still happening. So uh, all, all I'll say is, again, the argument is not an argument about uh, ideas overcoming material interest or anything like that. It's, it's an argument based in interest, but it's, it's I guess what I, I'll say, what I'm interested in is, one thing I'm interested in is, why does the U U.S. promote democracy in some places and, and authoritarianism in others? And I don't think that's been adequately uh, addressed in the literature, uh, to my mind. There, there are people who have various answers about it. Um, but, but, so yeah, so I accept the point. Um, yes, Randy.
And if it's about security or it's about milieugo, yeah. it may, now that might be the other category. It may be just milieugo. You just believe in this value regardless of how it affects your interests and your security. But, but if it's security and interest, then it is strange that dem democracy does seem to be the, the, a different animal than authoritarian, totalitarian, or um, monarchist, or absolutist-type governments, because they're used to exercise control. So when the Soviet Union had its layers of empire, and it was promoting, and right. it set up control, I remember your original talk was about something a little different, about why do states, when they have control or occupy those states, put their own type of regime in place. Yeah. And I think that with democracy, this is a little more difficult, because you don't have the control. So there is a puzzle there. I mean, maybe it's the old trade-off. You know, we just say, we ignore the trade-off. All good things go together. Maybe it's something in the liberals, Mike Gesher's talk before yours about how, well, you know, they're democratic, they're going to be pro-West, they're going to be pro-Arctic, but it's not yeah. necessarily true. So that's explained. Well, so, so you're, is the question, why, why don't we always promote authoritarianism because it's just easier to control? So the puzzle becomes, why, why not set up a friendly authoritarian regime in West Germany? Something like that? Because that's... Yeah. You, just, but I don't think necessarily it's promoting democracy per se increases your security. And during the Cold War, we saw that over and over again. Well, it increased U.S. security in Japan and Western Europe. Uh, I mean, you, and you look at the preferences of, I'll take Italy, another case I've studied a bit. Um, Italy, after the war, uh, had a number of factions. The, the had a communist party that was fairly strong. Togliatti would you know, return from... Russia and uh, was leading that. Uh, uh, had a socialist party that at that point was more or less in agreement with the communists on foreign policy. Um, Pietro Nenni was was the leader there. Then you had the Christian Democrats. Uh, uh, De Gasperi was the leader there, and um, these people had very different foreign policy preferences. The socialists and communists did not want martial aid. They wanted nothing to do with an alliance with the United States. Um, and the Christian Democrats and a small liberal uh, faction in Italy as well wanted the opposite. They were anti-communist, uh, more for religious than re liberal reasons. Uh, and, they, and they wanted to hitch their wagon to the United States. That was the best thing going. It's not that they wanted to become like America, but it was the best thing going. So it is... The argument is particular to conditions in the state. That's why I talk about, you know, in Corsaira, you've got, sometimes you'll have these two factions, but if you have these other two factions, you're going to have a different outcome. But it, it's, a, it's all about, uh, again, I have these two incentives. One is uh, the United States want, might want to increase its domestic security. I don't think that really was operative much in the Cold War, maybe in the McCarthy period, but, you know, American democracy was basically secure in the Cold War. It was, it was about in, improving the external environment, making allies. Uh, and it happened that conditions in what we call the Third World were such that there weren't pro-American Democrats. So there, were, there were lots of Democrats, social Democrats, who were willing to work with communists. You know, they weren't communists themselves, but they were willing to work with whoever would help them build the state on a particular model. So, and the United States, uh, both Democrat and Republican leaders in the United States said, not good enough. You, you know, you can't, you cannot have communists in your cabinet. 
Um, if you're going to, you have to be like Kurt Schumacher in the social, the SPD in Germany. You have to be anti-communist if you're going to, you know, be, do business with us. So um, now I'll, I'll just mention one other thing that is going to be a chapter in the book. Um, Ronald Reagan, one of the many interesting things about Reagan is he not only started doing business with Gorbachev, but he, he uh, turned on some of America's, author- America's authoritarian friends. Ferdinand Marcos was the first, I believe, in 1986. And uh, there was a battle royal within the Reagan administration about this. Um, you, know, it had to do with, you might remember the Corazon Aquino election and so on. And it's a fascinating story. That it, this Reagan that did this. Uh, and it was... Uh, George Schultz, uh, well, Paul Wolfowitz, I mentioned the talk, but Paul Wolfowitz, of all people, was uh, sec- sec- Assistant Secretary of State, and he was pushing this. Um, Richard Armitage, Michael Armacost, some of the names you, you know from the current Bush administration, and finally George Schultz were pushing uh, Reagan to dump Marcos in favor of course on a keynote. Resisting were Casper Weinberger, Donald Reagan, uh, Bill Casey, you know, and and finally, uh, Schultz convinced Reagan at this meeting. They all got together and they had a meeting on a Sunday morning. And, and Reagan said, "All right, we'll we'll dump our old friend Marcos." And Reagan began to do this elsewhere. And George Bush and Bill Clinton and so on. We all American began to dump its old uh, its path its criminal friends in, in, uh, around around the world. So that's an interesting puzzle. I, I don't know of a great deal of work that's been done on that one. Another unexplored phenomenon of the Reagan. But but I, I think what happened was conditions in the third world itself began to change. The Soviet model, state socialism, was uh, hit some hard times as a model in the 1980s. So transnationally it was on retreat. And you can look this up. You can see how various elites in the Philippines and elsewhere began to think about their options. How do we build uh, an, you know, an independent sovereign Philippines or whatever? We thought you know, something like the Soviet or Chinese model would work, but the Soviets themselves are abandoning it, so maybe we need to try something else. So uh, again, I'm, I'm, I look very closely at conditions in the target state to um, to come out with the answer. Yes. I, I wanted to stay on the same topic, which I find really interesting. It's, it seems to me that throughout the Cold War, the United States not only chose not to promote democracy in the third world, but it saw democracy as a threat. It saw democracy as the problem in a bunch of very specific cases. Guatemala in 53. Iran, Iran in yeah. 53. Guatemala, arguably South Vietnam, the coup against CM. The reason behind the coup, overwhelming evidence suggests, is that democracy in South Vietnam was moving toward negotiations with the Viet Cong. Right. Italy, of course, Brazil yeah. in 64. Yeah. And, and I was asking, what's in common to those? If you, it seems to me that if, if you... Yeah. If, is democracy the ideology which is is appropriate for the Cold War in terms of juxtaposing with the Soviet Union, or is it capitalism? Because yeah. what we've seen in all of those cases is a fear that leftist governments are going to make common cause with the communists, move toward the socialization of industries, maybe even opt out of the free enterprise system. That becomes the fear. That becomes the threat. And it seems to me it's consistent with an ideological argument, but not with yeah. the... Not a democracy's ideology. Yeah, let, let me say, I think these, this is an old debate. You know, does the United States uh, overthrow our bins because, to protect the United Fruit Company or because it's worried about Soviet influence in Latin America? It's, I don't want to try to disentangle those things. No, I, I think both of these things are going on. Let me just put it that way. Um, again, the, the interesting question is, why does the U.S. promote authoritarianism at one point and then uh, do less of it later? You know, there, is a, there is a shift going on. 
there. So, uh, and it has to do with, even though I said a minute ago, I don't, I'm not sure my argument explains Iraq, but it is striking that the United States has backed, you know, we, we helped Saddam Hussein in the war against Iran, and uh, then, lo and behold, we do this radical attempt at regime change. Um, what, what's going on there? there, there there's, a, there's a variation that we need to, we need to explain that I don't think is, is very, very well explained. But yeah, I mean, I, I just, the argument is by no means that America always promotes democracy. Uh, I mean, I, you know, we, we all know that's not the case. But it's, but it's, why does it promote what it does when it does? And, and sometimes it does, it seems, rel- in the 19th century, it's relative, relatively indifferent toward regime type. Why is that? Um, okay. Actually, my, I'm a historian of Cold War. I think, I let me just, I, I may have been misunderstood. The U.S. did clearly promote democracy, but it didn't happen until uh, later in 1946. That was my point. I wasn't right. saying they didn't promote democracy. No, I yeah, okay. I'm, Yeah, I guess I would say it's, I, I don't think my case rides on the United States was opposing democracy in its German zone, and then it changed its mind. All I need for the argument to work, I think, the way I've conceived of it, is the United States wasn't, there's a, there's a time in which the U.S. wasn't actively promoting democracy, whether it didn't want democracy or whether it was too busy or what, it wasn't a priority. And then at a certain time, it becomes this, this top priority. That's, that's all I need. That, that's the, the change I want to account for. Um, so my sort, I, I uh, want to hear more about the sources because I, I've relied very heavily on John Lamerton Harper's uh, book, which, I, I was, which impressed me greatly, but I, I, no doubt there's a lot more to be said about it. So maybe uh, maybe I get a cite or two from you. I, yeah, appreciate that. Uh, I, you've had your hand up for a while in the back there. Sorry. Yeah. I'm interested in the unalike 
Yeah. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I mean, I don't consider those promotions of communism, uh, and and I hope this is a distinction with a difference. Uh, you can make nice to a country, cooperate with a country, without promoting, you know, supporting its its regime. Uh, I'm I'm really talking about going in and you know, so, so have the United States, and maybe the United States did really support Tito against domestic enemies. I I, I don't know. I, did, I I'm just completely ignorant about that. Same with Mao. But my sense is there was just, you know, the United States didn't care, care for these, these regimes, but it just found, you know, geopolitics or such, and it made a lot of sense. Well, that's why I wonder, too, but my thing in yeah. your model, in terms of if you're talking in the beginning about um, security risks and security risks. Yes. But, you know, just uh, thinking about it briefly, you know, and not being an expert on it either, yeah. there might have been moments in history when security was um, abundant. And right. Let me say one thing about the Yugoslav case, which I've looked into very, very uh, I know I've got historians in the room, so I'm always hesitant to say. I've looked a tiny bit into the Yugoslav case. Tito was uh, pretty striking from the beginning and had, uh, as I understand it, um, because of the strong role of the partisans during the war, had some legitimate, more legitimacy in Yugoslavia than other communist parties had in the, in the uh, other parts of Eastern Europe. And so he, he just didn't need the Soviets as much as I understand it. And this gets to the part of my argument that has to do with conditions under which a state might uh, um, break with or, or distance itself from its ideological confreres. And one of those was, I, I use that Corsair example, let's suppose Corsair is a democracy, Athens makes it a democracy, and Corsair becomes a secure democracy, the oligarchs are gone, it will, it, it no longer has that strong common interest with Athens, it's going to perhaps, and I think something like that may have happened with Yugoslavia, maybe maybe China as well. In the in the early 50s, China, you know, Mao has not taken care of all the domestic problems. Uh, there, there are still domestic uh, bourgeois elements and so on. So he needs Stalin. Uh, he can't stand Stalin, as I understand. It's mutual, but they, they do sign an alliance and uh, enter an alliance in 1950. But as the 50s wear on, uh, that that wears away, and China is freer to, you know, make nice to other types of countries uh, over time. And it's more it's more the realist world, yeah. Yes. Um, I kind of want to go back to capitalism versus democracy. Uh huh. It makes me think about whether these ideologies that, that leaders are kind of using to form these blocks are simply kind of out there to be grabbed, or are there being are they being fashioned in support of um, certain kind of power realities and interests that states already have? So how would we know whether these ideologies were kind of pre-existing things that had their own kind of force, or whether they're being kind of yeah, that's one of those deep social theory questions. I'm, try, I'm trying to have it both ways, I guess, on that one. In other words, there, there are, you, you have a back and forth. They're, they're in a recursive relationship. There are these transnational conditions that states uh, exploit. And, and then state action can affect those conditions. And, and, and to put it more concretely, um, when when Athens makes Corsair a democracy, it furthers the transnational spread of them. It, it's a victory for a transnational democracy. 
and it changes the conditions facing, the incentives facing Sparta. Sparta now has a new incentive to counter-intervene. I don't know if that's answering your question, but that's, that's how I've handled that very deep uh, imponderable that we all face at one time or another. Yes? Yeah. It seems to be the United States and Israel against the rest of the world and cutting funding before Hamas is given a chance to form a government. Um, sort of theoretically, when does supporting a friendly regime, uh, when does the marginal cost exceed the marginal benefit? And when do you start isolating yourself, I guess, uh, politically, geopolitically? By, you mean, when does the United States concretely isolate itself by supporting Israel so... So strongly, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a it's a threshold argument, uh, and I I don't I don't know I I can't give you a quantitative answer. Um, there is a yeah there is a point. In other words, is is what lies behind the question? Uh, you have competing interests at work. At some point, the interest in not isolating yourself has got to outweigh the interest of hanging with your your ideological brothers. Um, yes, uh, un- undoubtedly. Uh, that, but that gets us into questions. You know, it's a more, it's a special form of a more common question in IR about, you know, cost versus benefits. Uh, and, you know, when, when do you need to cut from a, a particular ally and, you know, start aligning with other countries? And I, I, all I can say is there is a point, and this, this is never, this is not an argument about how um, countries uh, will always find it rational to, to support their ideological confreres. In fact, I mean, let's see. My argument about de-ideologization when countries, when this, these ideological tensions go down and countries begin to act more like realist states and align on for other reasons. I mean, the reason why they do that is there are always these incentives to loosen your ties with your allies. I mean, you know, it's the abandoned entrapment problem that Glenn Snyder talks about. These, these all, I, I acknowledge all of these dynamics. That so, the U.S. and Israel uh, have some incentives now. To, at least the, the governments of the two countries perceive very strong interests. But the U.S. You're describing uh, a, a countervailing issue. The U.S. has some interest in distancing, distancing itself from Israel so as to avoid further international isolation. Uh, all I can say is I, I acknowledge that that countervailing interest is there. I cannot tell you at what point it's, it starts to loom larger than, and, and it may well be now, or may have been a couple of years ago. I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, it is a countervailing interest. Um, yes? Yeah. Um, uh, the United States functions as a pretty big state throughout the organization. Yep. Iraq, obviously, and the ideology promotion in Iraq is obviously really hot topic. So I'm wondering how much the president's assertion that American ideology and American interests are now the same. No, yeah. No, no. A- ask it. Uh, it's a great question. Wondering, I'm just wondering how that does it impact, does it damage your argument, right? Because I mean, that would suggest that American foreign policy now overturns, right? You don't need ideology because ideology and interest are the yeah. same. I mean, you can sort of throw that out the window and say yeah. the president's going to be lying or he's incorrect. That's, yeah. that's probably the case. But if he's right, yeah. those are make a lot of trouble for you. Yeah. If if he were right, it would be trouble, <laughs> right? Oh, okay. um, if he were right, though, we would we would we would turn the troops. T- 
towards Saudi Arabia, I think, and you know all that all that sort of thing. So, so it is again, it's a conditional argument it, uh, in some areas of the world. It just it's we're back in we're still in authoritarian land where the United you know there's either not a democratic element or what Democrats there are don't like the United States for for you know whatever reason, and uh, it, it's yeah. So uh, what the president's trying to do? Politicians use words differently from we, right? They he's trying to change the world with his words. Um, and he's trying to, you know, make, make the world more like, and I, that, that, that effort, I mean, there are a lot of criticism to lodge against the Bush administration, of course, but, but the, um, you know, if this argument, if my argument's right, it, it, it would be nice to, if there are things America and other democracies could do to make the world more like a world in which, to bring the world closer to a world in which America's interests were, in fact, coincidental with its ideology, where, in fact, it was in our interests, uh, to promote democracy everywhere. We're just not, we're not there, but we're closer to that place than we were in 1950. That's, that's for sure. Uh, Ted, and then Dan. Uh, I'm sorry. I have uh, three questions. Yeah. The first is how appropriate. In almost all of your cases, you, um, we're talking about great power propagation of ideology. So communism, fascism, republicanism, liberalism, constitution, absolute monarchism, oligarchism, they're all about great power struggle. So in that case, you know, Islamism doesn't count. Second, I understand that, as you say, you know, great power is a lie for the reason. But are there any cases out there where a great power has ignored another great power taking over countries and imposing its ideology? I find I find it hard to think of any such international system. And third, yeah. one interesting case that you skipped over in your your uh, summary of the concert is 1821 Greece, where all the powers, Russia, Austria, Prussia, France, and Britain, collaborated in regime change. So they transcended the boundaries between constitutional absolute monarchies. And if I'm not mistaken, they imposed a constitutional monarchy. They chose some minor German prince to be the king of Greece. And I'm wondering how, how does that fit with your theory? Because clearly, yeah. uh, Ottomanism no, I think it was a spent force, yes. That's right. Um, Islamism, first question, Islamism, yes. I, I have talked, in the talk I certainly it was just talked about great powers, but um, maybe I shouldn't have because I do think the argument applies to other states. And I'll, I'll say in the... Uh, 16th century. England under Elizabeth I is not a great power. The great powers are Spain and France. But, but Elizabeth does this sort of, does it in Scotland, makes Scotland a Protestant country, and it becomes England's ally very quickly. Uh, tries the same thing in the Habsburg Netherlands, and it doesn't come off so well. But, but other smaller countries do it. Iran, I, I think, has, has done some of this. And Iran is a regional power, but it's not a great, so, so there's no there's no logical reason why I should limit it to great powers in the in the global system. I think any any country that has um, uh, enough power to do it in its region, uh, you know, where the constraints line up properly, uh, has incentives to do it, and, and we would expect to find it. Islam, and then uh, you open up the question, perhaps, of non-state actors, Al Qaeda, and so on. And uh, that's you know, we're all having a little trouble fitting that into our frameworks. But I, I yeah, I like to think that this sort of framework, which is which concerns spreading ideologies and retreating ideologies has something to say about, about that dynamic. I just haven't addressed that uh, yet very cleanly. 
Uh, your second question, have great powers ever ignored these interventions? N- no, I don't think so, but, but I, um, I, my argument about that is that when a state, when a great power, or stop saying great power, when a state exports its institutions to another state, it does give uh, any other rival states of an opposing ideology an incentive to counter-intervene there. And so I think that's, I can't think of any cases, but I don't think that's a problem from my I think it follows from the argument that... Thank you. I'm going to have Ted's going to write the blurb on the back of... If this ever becomes a book, you're the blurb writer. Greece, yeah. Uh, I'll give you another one that's a problem. France itself, uh, under the direction of the Duke of Wellington, um, the powers impose a constitutional monarchy on, on post-Napoleonic France. So Louis XVIII is set on the throne, but he's a constitutional monarch. He doesn't like it. He's a, a Bourbon. You know, he's not going to like that. But uh, it's, it's England. It, Wellington really is, is more or less. He's, he's the MacArthur of France. Uh, uh, and so he, I, I exaggerate a bit, but he, you know, he's, uh, he has the, the, the prestige and so on, I guess because of Waterloo. And uh, he, so uh, I don't know. I, I, yeah, the, these cases, um, all I can say is throw up a, a little white handkerchief and say, I, I don't know. Uh, th- these are, um, these are problems. They're, they're still, it's still regime imposition, but it doesn't fit in with the story I was telling. And, uh, Although I did not deliberately leave that out, you are right. You called you called me on it, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll think about that. Have to think about it some more. Question here. Uh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, Dan's been waiting. I'm sorry, Dan. Uh, um, couple of, of sort of comments, questions. Um, one is that you know, this is just some clarification, please. I'm not clear on how you define the intended Yeah. Or an intended, maybe, yeah, yeah. Or perhaps the actor winds up stabilizing the regime in order to protect its basing assets, right? Now, I don't think that the pros are framework out of whack in any way, but I think that you might think more carefully about this question of intentionality versus sort of unintended lock-in effect. Right? Yeah. And that becomes very salient in the cases you talked about in the Reagan era, right, in, in uh, the Philippines and in South Korea, where one could make the argument that the victorious claim that we should just get rid of these guys, right, or we should support the democratic transition, is not because the Democrats are perceived as more reliable, but it's because the alternative is perceived as a threatening revolution. Yeah, right? yeah. So it's, you know, catch the wave, so to speak. Right, right. Um, this is the best we can get right now. Maybe you email and Alex Cooley has been doing a lot of work on basic agreements. Cooley? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah okay. But, but the, the more huh. sort of The problem 
problem of democracy and capitalism, I, I, these, are, these are sort of orthogonal tensions, but I think they're worth thinking about, raises this question of multiple ideologies, multiple aspects disaggregating regime, regimes, right? Mm -hmm. And we all know, and, and this has pr purchase on some of the 19th century cases, it certainly has purchase on the, the early modern cases, both when you deal with the Nice Two article, but there are often going to be highly polarized uh, ideologies multiple ideologies at play, all of which are highly polarized. So in early modern Europe, Protestant versus Catholicism is maybe one of them, yeah. right? But another one of them is dynasticism versus republicanism, right? Or, di or, or certain different attitudes about dynastic authority, right? So in view of the celebrated story of the Macaul War, right, and one of the key things that happens in that story is whether or not... I, this is great. You read about, that case study. Right? Right? Yeah. Well, whether, or not, whether or not the when the conflict is configured as about being dynastic and institutional prerogatives, Mm -hmm. The Habsburg, right, side with Charles, when it gets configured as Protestant versus Catholicism, subsequently, you know, they jump ship, right? And so I guess the question is, you know, there's a multiple ideologies problem, and that right. raises this question of what do you mean by polarization, right? Because one version of polarization would be you have ideology A and B, right? And they sort of swab everything else. This becomes the primary contradiction right. of the environment. But another way that people talk about polarization is in terms of coupling and decoupling, right? So that Polarization is not that ideology A and B swap everything, but that D, E, and F get coupled with A, and G, H, and I get coupled with B, such that there's such that you're you wind up on one side or the other. But it's a multiple, but in this sort of multiple ideologies get coupled with yeah. another. And I don't think this discredits your argument, but I would suggest that you maybe think more thoroughly through that issue in terms of this overarching variable because you could probably get more leverage. Um, I know I've gone on too long, but I do want to uh, make one final point. Yep. If a lot of people would, would say, and I think Ted and a couple others have suggested this, that there may be a problem here in that the security rich versus security sparse sort of inter systemic variables may not get enough leverage because a lot of, there's, a, there's clearly a difference between, there's clearly another source of variation, which is the amount of hierarchy in the relationship between the great power or between and the, and the target. Yeah. And yeah. The target. yeah, sure, sure. And, um, and that gets you into all sorts of these things, like, you know, if you're locked in and out of basing agreement, you have residual rights, and you have uh, certain kinds of, you know, it, and this actually gets into Randy's question, because there might be very good arguments for democratization uh, over autocratic regimes from the base, and sort of being able to sort of a credible commitment perspective without your particular security mm -hmm. and economic concern. But, yeah, but I mean, that seems to me to be an incredibly important variable. There's clearly something different about occupying a country, right, and setting up the regime under those conditions, uh, and promoting, uh, you know, a civil war and a third party from which you do not have direct control, and that these variables of, of domination may be, of domination may, may, may intersect with your security, un, you know, level of security environment in, in more complicated ways than you suggest, right? In other words, the, the variable control may be Uh-huh. Well, I, I think the third is complex enough, so maybe we should talk about it. Um, it's another thing that I, I, yeah, I think I've addressed, but, uh, but, but I think not. Yeah, yeah, okay. 
Um, regarding the dependent variable, uh, I actually have, have uh, the way the book is going, uh, I have, uh, it begins with forcible regime intervention because as you say, we know when we see it, you can count them there, you know, there's very little disagreement about. Uh, but we also know, and because I'm, you know, a qualitative researcher basically, I'm very interested in other types of support and promotion, covert action. Now, the problem with covert action is you can never be sure when you've got all the cases. So it's, you know, there's, this, there's selection bias just built into the thing. You just don't, you don't even know how to characterize a bias, but countries that have open archives uh, do it more, but, you know, that's not true. Uh, so so I, I, I can't, can't do, I can't count up the cases of covert action. So I'm doing, I uh, haven't done this chapter yet, but there will be a chapter about uh, covert means of support. And it goes in the 19th century, Metternich does this, and, and so on. It's quite, quite interesting. Um, basis, things like, yeah, you're renewing a lease on a basis. This is how uh, Jimmy Carter, to the Philippines case again, uh, when Carter came to office talking human rights, it, you may know the story, he's the Philippine opposition, uh, Benigno Aquino et al. are very encouraged. And they're convinced that Carter won't renew uh, Subic Bay and, and Clark Air Force Base because those are, they regard those, uh, they believe it's just common, you know, it's common sense that these are props for the Marcos regime. Carter, in the end, does, in fact, renew the, and they, they, they the, the uh, Filipino opposition feels betrayed uh, by, by Carter and, and Mondale and so on. Um, so that's another type of indirect support. That's, that's another one that's hard to count, though, and I, I, I'm, I think the way I'm going to handle it is by doing uh, maybe another chapter on this kind of support because I don't want to ignore it. I don't want to write a dumb book that ignores m maybe most of the ways countries do this. But I do, because we have uh, pretty good data on the forcible interventions, Those I, I want to build, you know, I actually build the argument on those sorts of cases. Now, when you introduce non-lethal methods of regime promotion, you raise another type of question. Under what conditions will the U.S. use force as opposed to covert action as opposed to renewing basis and so on. Um, and I don't have an answer. I suspect the answer lies in familiar uh, realist stories about when, the, when it's efficacious to use force. But, but anyway, good, good questions. Oh, I'm, okay. I think we time to, to stop, is it? Together, so there's enough people here to thank you before yeah. the 1.30 time. Thank okay. you very much. Thank you very much. And I'll, I'll be here for a few minutes and we can take more questions, but I didn't want everyone to just drift off right. before good. we can pull this to a formal question. My sense of this, I guess I'm missing your main point. I will do so. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Appreciate that. Yeah, I will do that. Yeah, two things. You know.